you should dress for next Halloween like a glossy winged sharpshooter. And dance like Left Shark. Yes! <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a very special edition of the Arizona Wine Monk. I'm your host, Cody Vladimir Burkett. And I'm the special guest. Special guest, do you have a name? I'm Gary. You can call me Gary or Legs or if you're slightly more daring, oh captain, my captain. <laughs> you're not going to take this seriously, are you? Not a bit. <laughs> so Gary is on because we are doing a very, very special edition tonight of Pathogens and Predators or Things that destroy vineyards and how to destroy them. If you're a Harry Potter fan, which neither of us really are. Sorry. I'm just calling it the Bugcast. Yes, this is the Bugcast. So, so you did your master's on Pierce's disease, correct? Yes. So, what's your history with working with vineyards and that sort of thing? I've been working with vineyards since 2008, did my master's degree at North Carolina State in Pierce's disease of grapevines, and have been working in the northern Arizona wine industry for about two and a half years now. In terms of Arizona, what do you feel are, say, the five biggest threats in terms of pathogens and bugs to Arizona grapevines? That's a really good question. First and foremost, I would say because I'm me, Pierce's disease. But other than that, I think that skeletonizers and a couple other bug pathogens are going to be up there. Powdery mildew if you're in a humid area down by a creek. And then uh, phylloxera, if it establishes here, could be huge. Why don't we have phylloxera in Arizona yet? Reports are still out as to whether we do or don't actually have it. So I would suggest erring on the side of caution and thinking that we do have it. Where have the reports of phylloxera been coming in? They're all unofficial reports, but they've been coming from near Oak Creek. Okay. That's all I'm at liberty to say. Okay. So in terms of Pierce's disease, which grape varietals are the most vulnerable? Why are they more vulnerable than others? There's really no cut and dry answer to that. There hasn't really been any widespread testing for susceptibility to Pierce's disease. There have been tests with three, maybe four varietals, and that's about it. Um, Cabsav and Riesling are reasonably resistant. Chardonnay and Pinot Noir are reasonably susceptible, and that's it. No one's done a wide-scale test because most of the grapes that are grown in areas that are hotbeds for Pierce's disease are really those four. There's not a lot else planted, and that should change. What areas are particularly vulnerable to Pierce's disease? Hot, humid areas. Pierce's disease originated in the southeastern U.S., so Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Tennessee, that area. Hot, humid, don't have really severe winters usually. Uh, Southern California is a, another huge area, but thanks to some quick thinking on the part of everyone involved in the industry down there, it has not really spread all that much. Still established, but not spreading. What about in Arizona? I really can't say all that much about Arizona because I haven't really done any extensive sampling in the Southern Arizona. I know that Page Springs Calibri Vineyard doesn't have pierces, but I know that up in northern Arizona, Merkin West was ripped out because of pierces. 
So, I mean, that's really about all I know about where it's at in Arizona. I know there's some in northern Arizona, and I know there's not much in southern Arizona, but I haven't done any extensive sampling or surveying for it in um, southern Arizona, in Wilcox or Sonoida or any of that. How do I know, looking at a grapevine, if it has Pierce's disease? Google it. <laughs> but seriously, it's tough to describe in words. It's a lot easier to look at pictures and say, oh yeah, that's what I've got. The three main telltale symptoms are called marginal leaf scorch, matchstick syndrome, and uneven lignification. So marginal leaf scorch is, for people who aren't familiar with plant terms, uh, the margins of a leaf are the very edges of it, and they will appear scorched, or burnt, or dead. And inside that ring of dead, crumbly, necrotic tissue is going to be a brilliant ring of either white or red, depending on the varietal of grape. Secondly, you've got matchstick syndrome. After those leaves have scorched to the point where they're just no longer functioning, they fall off the plant, but they don't take the petiole or the little stem that holds the leaf onto the shoot with it. It leaves that there. And if you get a really heavily infested plant, it looks like you're not growing grapes, you're growing matchsticks, hence the name matchstick syndrome. And then uneven lignification is basically, lignification means whenever green growing plant tissue turns to brown, hard, woody tissue. So uneven lignification is that just that, uneven lignification, uneven brown turning of your shoots. So there's not really a lot of creativity in the naming of these symptoms, but that's it. That said, the best way to know for sure one way or the other is to send a sample to a lab. What exactly is Pierce's disease and how is it spread? It's a bacteria. It lives in both plants and the mouth parts of the insects that transmit it. So how it usually goes is there's this happy, healthy plant that's got some Pierce's disease bacteria. The bacteria is called Xylella fastidiosa. Again, Google it, big complicated name. An insect vector such as a sharpshooter or a leafhopper or a mealybug or a spittlebug feeds on that plant gets the bacterium in its mouth where it grows and divides further and thrives in the mouth parts of the bug. Bug moves to another plant, typically a grapevine. Feeds on the grapevine, some of the bacteria gets into the plant, forms a colony in there, and basically how it works is the bacteria clog up the xylem or the water conductive tissue of the plant and in effect give it a stroke. Which is why you can be watering the plant and watering the plant and watering the plant and it still looks like it's not getting enough water because the water isn't getting from the roots to the leaves where it's needed. How do you combat Pierce's disease? There are a couple options. If you've got infected plants, rip them out, kill them, get rid of that inoculum source. Uh, secondly, you can combat the vectors or the insects that are transmitting the disease. And the best way to do that with, is with a systemic insecticide. You put it in the irrigation system for your grapes. It doesn't get into the fruit. It's not harmful to humans. It doesn't make it into the final wine, but it kills the insects when they try to feed. And is the only thing that we've got that's anywhere near close to a silver bullet for dealing with this. What other diseases often affect grapes in the Arizona wine industry? I mean, the only two that I know of other than Phylloxera are Texas root rot and Crown Gall. Uh, what are those and what do they do? Well, phylloxera is a little insect that burrows into the grapes, more or less, and creates a little gall and just wreaks havoc on the grapes. That's the reason why all vines planted in France and Italy in the Old World are less than 100 years old, 
and are all planted on American rootstocks. Texas root rot is caused by an organism called, that was as last I heard, called Phytophthora omnivorum, which is similar to a fungus, it's an oomycete. And anything with the name omnivorum in part of its Latin name should be kind of scary because, especially if you're dealing with a pathogen like Phytophthora that eats anything, doesn't really care what it is, can devastate apples, can devastate peaches, can devastate pears, can devastate grapes. Other things to look out for in Arizona are definitely powdery mildew in high humidity areas like near water during monsoon season. And you should also look out for nutrient deficiencies. That's the biggest thing that I've seen out here so far. What do you mean by nutrient deficiencies? Do your soil samples, do your petiole samples at the right time of year. What is Grape, the right time of year? It really depends on what kind of sample you're taking. Uh, grapes really like a specific type of soil. Luckily for us, it is pretty damn close to the desert soil we've got, but there are some specific nutrients that we're missing here and there. Potassium is generally missing up north. Sodium is generally in excess down south. Do your soil samples during your dormant season, during your growing season, send them to a reputable lab get an analysis and amend your soil. It takes a couple of years for these amendments to sink in, so don't expect an immediate return on your investment. Then do your petiole analysis. That tells you what the grape is actually getting out of the soil and what it needs more of from the soil, what it needs less from, of from the soil. And you pull those during bloom every year. What time of year is bloom? Right now or? Bloom is gonna be late May, early June, generally. You know it when you smell it. There's really nothing quite like walking into a vineyard and smelling 10,000 grapes all in bloom at the same time. It's overwhelming. A friend of mine put it as, they smell like a beautiful hippie woman who bathes. <laughs> so like Malvasia, in other words. Exactly. Which, of course, is what we're drinking, because why would we drink anything other than my girlfriend? It's a pretty hot threesome, if you ask me. Yeah, double threesome. So how would one prevent, say, all these other pathogens, Texas root rot, how does one prevent that? How does one prevent phylloxera? How does one prevent powdery mildew? Or can you? Powdery is the only one that you can really prevent. And you just got to keep up with your foliar sprays during your high humidity seasons, like for us, monsoon season. Most of the fungicides that control for bunch rot will also control for powdery mildew. So you can knock everything out at once as often as you need to as long as you're spraying both the foliage and the clusters. Texas root rot, if you've got it, you're hosed. You really need to rip out your plants and fumigate your soil. That's the only method that's been shown to eradicate it. Uh, you can prevent it by not bringing in infested plants. Uh, buy your plants from reputable nurseries, certified disease-free plants. And phylloxera, well, if we've got it and you're planted on rootstocks from American or hybrid grapes, you're fine. If you're unrooted and we do have it and it establishes in your vineyard, your host, you're going to have to rip and replant. Best thing I can recommend for any vineyard manager or vineyard worker out there is to go to the American Phytopathological Society website and buy a copy of the Grape Compendium. Hell, buy two, buy three, buy one for everyone on your staff. They are worth their weight in gold. They are the Bible for plant diseases for each individual plant that they're written about. The grape one is the Bible for plant grape diseases, and it is what any extension agent you're going to call will go to if they get stumped. Worth their weight in gold. They're about 120 pages, 
and they cost about a hundred bucks a pop, but they're worth it every penny. So we've talked about things that are affecting the great plants. Um, you mentioned Unchrot. This is the same route that does uh, the famous Batridae's wines in France, the Sauternes, right? No, actually. Botrytis is a kind of buntrot. It is a very specific kind of buntrot caused by a fungus. When I learned it, it was called Botrosphyria. Before that, it was called Botrytis cincinniera. Now it's called something else. I don't really know. It's caused by that one specific organism. The buntrot that we're dealing with here in Arizona is more often called sour rot which is a complex of organisms, a lot of bacteria, a lot of yeast, a lot of fungus that get into wounded grapes and start fermenting all of the fun, yummy fermentables in, inside the grapes before we want them to and in an uncontrolled way how we don't want them to and cause a really disgusting, vinegary, sour flavor and aroma that can spread very, very quickly throughout clusters and from cluster to cluster. What grapes are really vulnerable to that here in Arizona? Anything with a thin skin and a tight cluster. Like if you think about the movie Sideways, when the asshole character is waxing poetic about how much he loves Pinot Noir, everything he lists is a reason why it's not a good idea to plant in Arizona. It's got thin skins, it's got tight clusters, it's tough to farm, it's a rot bomb. If people ask you, should they plant Pinot, break it down into syllables for them. P, no. Emphasis on the no. What about Pinot Meunier? There are no plantings of that, that I know of in Arizona, so I really can't tell, and I've never seen those grapes in person. So again, I really can't tell one way or the other. So talked about things that affect the grapes kind of before and during. So pathogens, the little ones, what are the strangest threats that you've encountered in the vineyard? I know you've told crazy stories about Calibri. Oh God, where to start? The strangest threat? Was that the question? Mm-hmm. Potentially threats to ripe grapes. The strangest threats to ripe grapes that I have seen have been my last season down at Calibri. I could have sworn there was a cat, a neighborhood cat that was getting into our grapes. But upon further investigation, it turned out to be a ringtail, and that was pretty strange. Um, another strange and rather unfortunate threat to ripe grapes are bears. Bears think grapes are just about the best thing on earth, and will eat two to three hundred pounds of them a day if you let them. How on earth do you combat that? Shotgun and electric fence. What about, you know, a lot of times during harvest, when I'm putzing around vineyards, I do see bird nets. Around. Are the birds really taking that much? Yes. If left unchecked, birds could de devastate your entire crop. What kind of birds are the biggest threats here in Arizona? The ones that eat our grapes. Thank you, Einstein. <laughs> You're the one who likes birds. I just think they all need to die. Well. Except kestrels. They're pretty cool. What? What's that one crazy black bird that... With a funny name that everyone wants to shoot on site during harvest season? Phenopepla. Yes! Yeah, those like... all need to die. <laughs> so, in your opinion, between bird nets and those recordings that are made of predator distress bird things, which do you think works best? There are two ways to answer that. 
If by best you mean most effective and simplest, the nets are going to win hands down as long as they're applied correctly. You really just can't beat how effective they are. But that said, if you're talking the mental well-being of your crew, anything but nets is going to win because nets are just about the worst thing in the world to deal with. How so? Experience it, then come back to me. <laughs> Pass. <laughs> Do yourself a favor and don't wear any shirts with buttons. I'll keep that in mind. So is there anything you particularly want to tell your class? What's, what's teaching like? Are you finding this easy, an easy transition or? So to fill in that gap, I teach plant biology and viticulture at Yavapai College, and I'm loving teaching. It's a lot of fun. Students are great. They ask really great questions, and I forgot that what your question was. Well, side note, what is the best question you've ever been asked from your students? Want to go grab a beer? <laughs> Not exactly my definition of best, but it is a good one. Oh, is there anything you particularly want to tell your students who are going to be listening to this podcast, I'm assuming? Maybe. Uh, listen to it. There's a question on the test from this. Which is? You'll know it when you see it. Jesus Christ. Oh, he's gone now. <laughs> we're looking also at a screensaver while we're drinking uh, Malvasia Bianca, the Vino Familia Blanca. 2013. Which is... 94% Malvasia and 6% Marsan. Well, Gary is drinking the last of the Malvasia. Cody's about to start drinking some Calibri Syrah. <sighs> I knew I should have poured more of that. <laughs> so, in your experience in, in working, as it were, hands-on in the vineyard, what do you feel are the grapes that particularly want to be here? And what are the grapes that you think that should not be planted here? As far as grapes that seem to want to be planted here and just love growing here, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Malvasia and Syrah. They both eat this shit up. Um, they both love being in Arizona. They're really easy to work with. They produce high quality fruit time and time again. Uh, Sangiovese also does amazing out here. Tempranillo is, Tempranillo is probably my favorite of the grapes that grow out here and really love it. I'm excited to see what Sagrantino and uh, Nero de Bola do out here as well. Italian reds and whites and Spanish reds and whites I think are going to be superb. And then you can't say anything against the track record that Arizona Syrahs have, even though I'm starting to get a little bored of them because there are just so many really good ones, but that's a good problem to have. What about those that don't want to be here in your experience? That's a really good question. Um, so yeah, Norton. Norton really doesn't like growing out here. Norton is an East Coast varietal, loves high humidity, and we really don't have that out here. It has really failed to thrive in the one planting that I've seen of it. I hope it does better in the future. I've had some amazing wines made from it, but my hopes are not up for that one. I have mixed feelings about, about Barbera because on the one hand, the crop that you can get off of it is amazing. But on the other hand, the crop that you can get off of it is generally pretty small. And it seems to not be thriving as much in Northern Arizona as I would like. But 
time will tell. Maybe it's a site, maybe it's management practices, maybe it's a handful of things. Maybe the vines just weren't ready to produce and they need a couple of years more vegetative growth before they're putting out a good crop. Time will tell. But that's another fun thing about the Arizona wine industry is that for the most part, it's relatively new. A lot of the plantings that I've worked with are less than 10 years old. So there's still a lot of experimentation going on. There are a lot of things that are reasonably tried and true, but there are a lot of things that no one knows what's going to happen. And that's why I love being in this industry as opposed to in California or Oregon or Washington or New York where it's already been established. What three grapes would you like to see planted most in Arizona that aren't growing here yet? I really want to see more Sagrantino planted. I know that there are at least two plantings that are not mature yet, and I cannot wait to see what they do. Um, and other than that, I'd really love to see more Spanish whites and uh, Italian whites planted. Like I love Vermentino from Italy, from North Carolina, from anywhere I've had it. It's been amazing. And I know of two plantings in Arizona. And I think there should be more. So Sagrantino, Vermentino, and pretty much anything. Her third grape will be anything that's Spanish or Italian that's not already planted out here. That's a huge list. And so? <laughs> Plant all of the grapes! You have to answer this question for me, too. If you were a grape, what grape would you be and why? So I have to answer this for both of us? Yup. So it's widely been established that if you were going to be a grape, you would be Tanat because kilts have tannins. <laughs> I think also tannic and difficult to get to know, but once you know it, you like it was another answer. And also a third answer from Megan at Hops and Vines was you go great on your own, but you also blend really well with other people. All brilliant answers. And I believe that we decided that if I was going to be a grape, I would be Cota de Volpe, which means tail of the fox. And it's a lovely Italian white varietal because I like Italian white varietals very, very much. And well, I wear kilts too, and foxy ladies like kilts. <laughs> what was your experience up there in North Carolina versus Arizona? How is it different? How are things similar? So in Arizona and in general out west, we like to say that grapes like to grow in soil, con soil with a low moisture content. In North Carolina, we like to say that we were experimenting with growing grapes in moisture with a low soil content. So completely, completely different. If you missed a spray for any sort of fruit rot or any sort of foliar rot, your crop was pretty much done. I like to think that if I can grow grapes in North Carolina and I can grow grapes in Arizona, I can grow grapes on the moon. Although probably more likely Mars, but... If you were going to do a vineyard on Mars, what would you grow? Everything that I mentioned that I would like to see planted in Arizona. <laughs> Actually, you could probably, there's been enough research done on the Martian soil profile, thanks to the rovers, you could probably figure out more or less what you'd need to add to the soil to make it worthwhile. Something that's not okay to grow under a greenhouse after you've, you know, added air. I probably could do that research, but 
I'm working three jobs right now and I've got a fence that needs fixing, that's not going to happen. <laughs> Alrighty, so you heard it here for folks. Gary thinks that after uh, his experience in both places, he can grow grapes on the moon and on Mars. I personally look forward to our first Martian Malvasia uh, and Syrah co-ferment. Uh, we are going to continue drinking. We're going to leave you guys hanging. Well, not literally hanging. As... Yep, leave it hanging. Late harvest that shit. <laughs> <laughs> Till we meet again next time, this is Cody Burkett and... Gary. Oh, Captain, my captain. <laughs>